You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we've got a Hanaho show for you, showcasing some past interviews we've done with Hawaii residents who became the first from our state to win awards in their field. Christine Ahn was awarded the 2022 Peace Summit Medal for Social Activism at the 18th Summit of Nobel Peace Prize laureates in South Korea. She's the founder of Women Cross DMZ, a global movement of women mobilizing for peace on the Korean Peninsula. According to the Asia-Pacific Public the diplomat, 71% of South Koreans favor peace. Yet former U.S. Army Colonel and retired diplomat Ann Wright says that South Korean polls put the estimate at 95%. Many want an end to the 70-year conflict and fear any measure of war. The conversation Stephanie Han sat down with Christine Ahn to talk about peace between North and South Korea and the democratization of the peace process. The Korean War, which was from 1950 to 53, it was actually a, supposed to be a limited police action. President Truman never got authorization from Congress to wage this war. Three million people died in that war. The U.S. waged a really brutal air bombing campaign in North Korea, where 80 percent of cities were completely obliterated. In fact, it was so bad that the major general Emmett O'Donnell testified to the Senate one year into the war that there are no more targets. It was a symmetrical warfare. North Korea, and then later joined by China, didn't have the kind of sheer air power that the U.S. had. And so that war was the beginning of the Cold War. The Korean War was the front line of the war. It was the first war that the Americans and actually the Chinese troops, it wasn't just North and South Korean soldiers, fought each other. And because that war has never been resolved, it has meant that 73 years later, there is still a pretty sizable U.S. military occupation in South Korea. It has meant the massive militarization of the Korean Peninsula, including North Korea, acquiring and developing nuclear weapons. And so it is a tinderbox in a region that is very insecure. And if a military conflict were to break out, the Congressional Research Service estimates that 300,000 lives would be instantly lost. It is time to take war off the table and negotiate a peace settlement. What you're saying is the armistice never formally ended the war. I don't think a lot of people truly understand that when they're viewing the situation in North and South Korea. I'm wondering and I'm very curious about how your organization, Women Crossing DMZ, advocates for a different kind of peace diplomacy style How does it differ from traditional approaches? In 2015, when we organized a historic crossing of the demilitarized zone from North to South Korea, included among the 30 women were Nobel Peace Laureates, Lema Kaboe, Marie McGuire, also Gloria Steinem, and here, our very own retired U.S. Army Colonel Ann Wright. And when we crossed the DMZ, we called for an end to the war with the peace agreement and for family reunions, but also women's leadership in the peace process when it comes to diplomacy, when it comes to foreign policy, is very much the domain of men, of retired generals. It has a very masculine approach to resolving conflict. Unfortunately, the last 30 years of the U.S. foreign policy approach to North Korea, whether it's been under Republican or Democratic administrations, has been a combination of failed policies, whether it's sanctions that harm ordinary people, military exercises that further provoke North Korea, or just the sheer isolation of North Korea from the international community. And so we say that we need a different approach. We need a peace-first approach instead of dangling the prospect of peace and normalization at the end of a process. We need it at the front end because North Korea is not going to denuclearize unless it has a security guarantee. The the Kim regime often says the U.S. must drop its hostile policy, and that means that this unresolved war must be settled in a formal, permanent way. And so that's what we're calling for, because the costs are just far too high, and that also includes the millions of families that still remain separated and unable to see their loved ones. 
studies have shown that when women are involved in, in peace processes, it actually leads to a peace agreement. But we also know that when women peacemakers mobilize, that we build the political will for peace. And we have been working with um, congressional peace champions to pass a resolution, House Resolution 3446, calling for an end to the Korean War with a peace agreement. And that was introduced by Brad Sherman from California. He's a national security Democrat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And we've had tremendous support from members of Congress here in Hawaii, except for very one, uh, our very own Ed Case, who has been unwilling to sponsor it because he is of that old mindset that we cannot make peace with North Korea unless they completely denuclearize. And that is just a broken, failed approach. And it's time for a new one. Do you see your organization's work as somewhat questioning the machinations of the structure of the nation state? What then um, might you see later on in the 21st century in terms of North Korea, South Korea, and how this discussion of the nation state unfolds? I don't know if we're intentionally challenging the traditional paradigm of nation states, but I think what we are trying to do is democratize the process of shaping U.S. foreign policy, which, according to David Vine, an anthropologist who teaches at American University, who wrote the award-winning book, United States of War, that the U.S. has been at war for all but 11 years. The last 20 years of the failed U.S. war on Iraq, on terror, has led to massive failed policies, massive migration, almost a million people killed, tremendous loss in our public dollars that should actually go to reinvestment in things that make us secure, whether it's housing, jobs, education, healthcare. And it's time for us to call for an end to the endless U.S. wars. And being that the Korean War is the oldest of all U.S. wars, it's really time to reverse that process. And if we can democratize the process of shaping U.S. foreign policy, it's not just for the Korean people that really want an end to this war, but it's for us here at home to transform how we define what makes us secure. We know that there is a lot of organizing and mobilization around issues that are domestic, considered domestic issues, but we will never have the money for those things unless we tackle the Pentagon budget, which claims more than half of all of our public dollars. Do you see any parallels between Hawaii's own struggle with the effects of a military presence and the situation in North and South Korea? And I'm thinking a lot about perceptions of the military, particularly with regard to Red Hill. One of the beautiful posters that we've seen all around Oahu is the one of Kalo, Red Hill, the jet fuel leak going in the Aina and in our Vai, but then that being connected to the ships and to the planes that are going to wage the wars across the Pacific and Asia. And we cannot divorce what is happening here in Hawaii with what is happening in Guahan, in Okinawa, in South Korea, in Japan, in the Philippines. We are all linked because of the U.S. militarization throughout the Pacific and Asia. Hawaii plays a very significant role in terms of trying to reverse that militarization It is tied to our ability to have a good and decent society. And I think that we have to understand that the historical context of Hawaii serving and Pearl Harbor being the headquarters of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and what we can do here when we organize and push for a different kind of U.S. foreign policy, that it's not just for those communities that have been fighting the U.S. military presence and the the devastating consequences of more militarization, but also just how it affects us back here at home, because we need to divert all of our investments towards more militarization, towards things that make us secure. 
we need clean water. We will not survive without it. How is environmental justice linked to anti-war and peace efforts? Environmental justice movement has really understood the linkages between racism and militarism, whether it's who is recruited to serving in the military. It's predominantly people of color or working class people and who is then sent to wage these wars and then come back traumatized to then continue the cycle of violence in their homes and in their communities. And so I think we once we see that linkage and we also see the tremendous cost to our environment caused by more militarization, we have no choice but to actually challenge that. And I think that uh, we're seeing more of that, more of that awakening. I'm on the board of Hawaii Peace and Justice. We do see an opportunity. The land lease of the military is set to expire by 2029. And so we have the next seven years to organize, to think about how instead of the military investing in more military and more preparation for war, how about we use that land, whether it's to grow food, whether it's to have more sustainable housing, what could we do? How could we imagine reallocating investments in more militarization towards things that build a good society? And I think we need to start thinking that way. Our survival depends on it. Finally, I just have a question about China and the U.S. in terms of foreign policy. This is obviously was enacted out through the North and South Korea situation. And how do you see this unfolding here? How do you think it might affect the people of Hawaii? Well, it's already affecting us in terms of justifying more militarization. I think that we're seeing a massive amounts of pork going to more defense contractors. That does not bode well in terms of how we are allocating our public dollars. The U.S.-China great power competition is being used by the military-industrial complex to justify more money to go towards these weapons manufacturers. I think that we have to challenge that because Without a doubt, China needs to improve its conditions back at home and and competition. That can be a good thing. I mean, we all know that competition isn't always bad. But how about competing, which is a better society, which is a society that provides for its people, provides better education, health care, and things that make a good society? I think that's where we need to shift instead of how are we allowing each of the military industrial complex of both the United States and China to compete. And I think that instead of mutual prosperity, we're leading to mutual destruction. This is the reality. And I just think, gosh, if the United States invested in the things that actually made us more competitive, like real good education in teachers, in nurses and doctors and hospitals that actually produce a healthy and well-educated society, we would be in a much better position to compete with the rest of the world. But I think that's where having a different paradigm instead of one that is about a unilateral domination of the world to a more cooperative and a different kind of economy that isn't just about exploitation, consumption, that we actually have to have a radically new paradigm of the kind of world we want to live in. That was Peace Summit medalist Christine Ahn talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn back in December of last year. Ahn seeks the involvement of women at the negotiation table, making the peace process more democratic and ending the 70-year rift between North and South Korea. Jean 
genome editing pioneer Jennifer Doudna, a UC Berkeley professor and Hilo High graduate, was honored by the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation at its award dinner this past April. She made headlines in 2020 as a co-winner of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Doudna was a guest on the conversation in 2018. At the time, she was in Hawaii for a speaking tour about her work with the CRISPR gene editing technology. She reminisced about her humble roots, wonderful mentors, and achievements along the way. My family moved to Hilo in 1971, and um, my father, my dad, had gotten a job at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, uh, where he was uh, working as a professor of American literature, so not science. And uh, we moved out there, and uh, I started school at Kapiolani Elementary, and I went there for a couple years, and then I uh, finished up at uh, Kalmana Elementary. And then I went to a couple years to St. Joseph uh, Middle School, Intermediate School, and then I went to Hilo High School. And um, during that time, I got, you know, I was, I loved math and science and never really, I didn't know anybody who was a, you know, a professional scientist, but I started to think about, you know, how interesting it would be to have a job where you spend your time figuring out how things work in the natural world. And I had actually had two teachers that uh, were very influential for me. One was Miss Wong. So I've talked about her before. She was my chemistry teacher at Hilo High School. And the other was a wonderful uh, teacher named Marlene Hapai, uh, Mrs. Hapai. And, you know, we, as kids, we loved, we loved her name, you know, Mrs. Pregnant, <laughs> right? And <laughs> um, but... She was also one of the, you know, people that really uh, showed me how exciting it would be to be working in the area of, in her case, biology and understanding the natural world as a, as a scientist. And when you talk about natural world, I mean, gosh, the big island, you've got the volcano, you've got, you know, incredible microclimates. Oh, yeah. No, what a place, right? I mean, it was so special to grow up there and to experience that natural world. And I think I also... Um, I was really fascinated by the process of evolution as it plays out in an island environment. And, of course, I wasn't, you know, thinking about it that way at the time, being a kid. But I was just amazed at all the different kinds of, you know, plant species and animals and insects and flowers, you know, everything that had evolved in that, in that environment. And I, I just found myself uh, a lot of times wondering, you know, what it was about, the, you know, the, uh, the chemistry of these types of organisms that made them especially well adapted to, you know, to thrive um, in, in, uh, in Hawaii. So it was very fertile ground for your mind. <laughs> exactly. Fertile ground in multiple ways, but certainly for my mind, yeah. I'd like to mention one other uh, scientist as well who had a big influence on me. He was a professor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. He's a very good friend of our family uh, named Don Hemis. And uh, Don Hemis, uh, you know, he's emeritus now, but he was a biology professor uh, there and uh, was a good friend of my dad's. Uh, Their family was a good friend of ours. And um, he was fascinated with a number of things, including the types of shells that have evolved in the Hawaiian islands, Hawaiian waters, and also mushrooms. And he wrote a wonderful book about uh, mushrooms in Hawaii and all the kinds of, you know, different types of fungi that have uh, been able to thrive in that environment. So again, it was sort of being exposed to that way of thinking and and sort of um, asking questions about the kinds of organisms that you see in that unique environment that I think was a very important um, influence in my life early on. And you are in like a whole other stratosphere. I mean, you're doing like gene editing and it's just so incredible when I was reading about um, the work that you've done. You have a lab named after you at Berkeley, and you've just signed on with another lab in San Francisco. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, this, this has been a, a really exciting time because the research that we were doing a few years back has now, uh, you know, become a technology for altering the DNA in cells that gives scientists an incredible opportunity to do things like, um, you know, understand and, and eventually cure genetic diseases and also to... Um, generate plants that will be adapted to uh, changing environmental conditions and dealing with climate change and things like that. So, you know, this just opened the door to all sorts of both research and applied opportunities that I'm now 
part of, and you know, one of the motivations for opening the lab in San Francisco is to be closer to my clinical colleagues so that we can think about ways to use gene editing to treat uh, genetic disease. And that really is amazing, you know, when you think, oh, we could use this science to save lives and, you know, hold off a lot of, of suffering for so many diseases. Exactly. It's very exciting. It's very motivating. And, you know, it really involves a lot of collaboration, which I like. And I can't believe between you winning that $3 million prize and then opening these labs, you also had time to write a book. <laughs> yeah, a book. Uh, so that book, A Crack in Creation, was the result of a wonderful uh, student in the lab, Sam Sternberg, who finished his PhD about three years ago and um, decided that he really wanted to take a year off to, to write a book about our experience in the lab of you know being involved in fundamental research that became this very important technology. So I worked with him over the course of a year to uh, put that book together, and it was a, a lot of fun. It was a lot of, um, uh, a lot of stress at times trying to figure out you know, how to tell the story and make sure it was understandable by non-experts. But in the end, I think that you know, we both felt really good about having uh, had that experience together and being able to share our thinking about the science and also the ethics of where it's going in the future. What happens now? Well, for me, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm really uh, an educator. I, I love uh, working with students, and I I think for me, you know, being at a public university like the University of California, it's very analogous to my dad's work at the University of Hawaii on one level because I know that my dad always valued being part of a public uh, university system that makes education available to everybody. You know, people that want to come in if they want to study and work hard, uh, the university is available to them, and I think that's. That's really something that's near and dear to my heart uh, at the University of California as well. So I have, you know, a lot of um, work that I do is with students, and I do I do a fair amount of teaching, but also uh, research that involves training the next generation of scientists. So that's one thing. But then, of course, you know, ensuring the the uh, the, the uh, development of gene editing as a technology, and looking for ways that we can participate in the application of gene editing in, in uh, clinical disease as well as in agriculture is something that I feel very excited about as well. And because your parents are educators, I mean, they just must have been thrilled to their toes, you know, when you won that award. Well, you know, sadly, my dad passed away in 95, and uh, my mom moved from Hilo to Berkeley, California, when our son was born back in 2002, but she also passed away recently. So, I think, you know, when I think about my parents, I, I feel like even though they didn't know about the specifics of that award, I know that they would be very happy with, with how things turned out. And I think that, you know, I, I certainly give them a lot of credit for having uh, encouraged my interest when I was very young. That was an interview from our archives with noted biochemist and proud Hilo High School alum Jennifer Doudna. She and a colleague shared the more than $1 million Nobel Prize for their work that has revolutionized biomedicine. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Zucker, author of Vitality Map. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a guide to deep health, joyful self-care, and resilient well-being. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
Welcome back to The Conversation. Let's continue our Hanaho show featuring interviews with people who have become the first from Hawaii to win an award in their field. Tracy Tong jokes she got nudged out of the nest here at Hawaii Public Radio by then general manager Cliff Eblen to get out into the world. She took that literally. That was two decades ago, and during that time she worked in public media filing stories in places like Africa and Europe. She was also on the founding team of the show The World, which airs here on HPR. We caught up with her this past February. She'll be the first from Hawaii to be honored with the Leo C. Lee Lifetime Achievement Award from the Public Media Journalist Association this month. She said she laughed when she heard the news. Others who have received the award include the Pointner Institute and This American Life host Ira Glass, so she's in good company. She laughed about receiving a lifetime award because she says she's not done with journalism by a long shot, and she's a bit uneasy about the attention. Here's Tracy. So it was such a surprise, and I am absolutely humbled. I mean, really, really humbled by this because... You know, Hawaii style, you know, the Hawaii parenting is don't brag. You don't brag about yourself. You don't talk about yourself. You know, you you just do what you do. And then if you're good, people will know. If you're not, well, you, you know, people will know. But you don't talk about yourself. So I know that, you know, I never feel comfortable in the limelight. So this was big surprise for me. Well, you started here at Hawaii Public Radio, and you know I used to see you out in the field covering City Hall and, and the state legislature. I mean, mm-hmm. how did that help you in your career later on? Here's the irony, Catherine. I started when they were still on campus. They didn't even have the station yet. I was told, because I used to listen to KQED. I'm from San Francisco and from Hawaii. And so I approached Cliff Eblen at the time, and I said, I really want to do this. I want to come check it out. And this was down below by the parking lot, down by the, the oh, my goodness, down by the music in the sports mm-hmm. area. Yes, I remember those buildings. <laughs> and we had egg cartons in the studio, you know. And I just thought that was the best thing. And I went and got egg cartons, and I put it in my room <laughs> just so I could practice. And then we moved to Kaheka Street, which was great, which was absolutely wonderful. And... There were just two of us, myself and Laura Dayton, and yes. Bob Miller was our news director, and he was doing music, so Laura and I were basically on our own. And so I just decided, you know, I'm going to just do what I'm going to do, and, and I went down to the legislature. Laura did City Hall. We just covered all those stories. I got to do a lot of stories for AP and UPI and NPR, which was wonderful. That's where I got a lot of exposure. And then I went to a journalist convention, and that's where I met one of the heads, one of the editors of the NPR newscast. And he said, I want to talk to you because I want you to to talk to somebody in Dallas. And I thought, Dallas? But what I got from Hawaii is just, that you know, everybody is just so nice and so wonderful when you want to talk to people. If you just approach them nicely, they'll talk to you. And for me growing up in Hawaii, I didn't know about being Asian, you know, it's not in my face. Everybody is just, you judge people by who they are, what they do, not how they look, not the color of their skin. And so it really spoiled me in terms of the kind of stories I got to cover. And I had so much freedom to do anything I wanted that, you know, I went for it. And then when I got recruited to work in Dallas eight years later, what a shock that was. What was the difference? The difference was the moment I stepped in, you know, off the plane in Dallas, I was immediately made to feel like an outsider in that I would be looked at and I would be asked the question, how did you learn to speak such good English? You know, where are you from originally? You know, and it's like, are you kidding me? And so it was very, very segregated. Whites were in North Dallas. Blacks and uh, Hispanics, that's what they call them in, in Texas. Blacks and Hispanics are in the South. And it's very, very segregated. And I had a hard time penetrating that. You know, it's like, wait a minute, can't you just look at me as a reporter? And I would go into black neighborhoods and they would ask me, are you Connie Chung? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? But it was because of my Hawaii background, growing up with all of these cultures and blending the cultures and not even thinking about it, 
that's what I decided to do. I said, I'm going to come do these stories. I mean, yeah, I had to do stories of Fort Worth, but I wanted to do all these different communities, and I wanted to just be out there and cover stories that people in Dallas just took for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, the whites live there, and of course, the blacks live here, and this is what we think of them, and this is what we think of them. And I was like, well, let's challenge that. One of the biggest stories was they had this county commissioner, something that Hawaii doesn't have, but it's a county commissioner, and he would always scream racism with anything that happened. And so they had this big press conference and screamed racism in the DA's office, racism in the DA's office. And so all the reporters, they do their stories and they go off. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> what do you mean? And so I did a three-part series on this, looking at the whole judicial system, starting with the police officers. Dallas police officers, the majority of whom came from white suburbs, they did not have any any dealings at all with anybody of color. Okay, so then they come down to Dallas Police Department, and whoa, the second part of the story was the district attorney's office. Yes, they had indeed, out of a hundred somewhat district attorneys, only two were black, African American. You know that was a problem because most of the people that they were trying were. African-American or Latino or Hispanic. They didn't have any representation. And then the third part of that story was the juries. You know, on the juries were a lot of retired white people because they could take the time off. The Hispanic and African-American residents couldn't. So you have these three things creating this perfect storm of events, and that's what created a lot of the hostility, the imbalance when it comes to crimes, when it comes to, you know, the criminal justice system. I love doing that. And I felt like I was actually contributing to something that people had not really thought about. In this day and age, you know, diversity and race are still in the headlines, and it's still a tough nut to crack in in so many communities across the country. And I have to chuckle because I'm thinking, you know, you're going to be getting this award, the Leo Lee Award, I think in Texas, right? In San Antonio, yes, absolutely, yes. But San Antonio is very heavily Hispanic, Mm -hmm. but yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's certainly lots to reflect on when you think of, you know, where you've been and the kinds of stories that you've covered, you know, around diversity. Uh, one of the best instances of the stories that I covered there had to do with the KKK. So there was the stories of the KKK infiltrating the small uh, town sheriff's departments. And they were very proud of the fact that you were doing this. So they have this press conference late at night, and these are the outskirts of, of Dallas. You know, there's Dallas-Fort Worth, and then outside of Fort Worth, there are all these, you know, smaller towns. And so that's what I was covering. I just wanted to do that. And so I got to know the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And, you know, everybody decides to, all the other media, they come in, they do their stories, and then they fly out. I mean, not fly out, but then they go home, and then they move on to the next story. I wasn't like that. I wanted to know more. I wanted to dig deep and find out, okay, why is this? What are driving people to do this? Why are you so proud to be doing this? What does everybody else think about this? And so (laughs) I got called one day by the Grand Wizard. I can't remember. I think his name was John. And he says, okay, Tracy, I'm not going to have you come out to my trailer. Thank goodness. Why don't we meet halfway? Why don't we meet at Denny's? <laughs> I was like, okay, we'll meet at Denny's. And so I go to Denny's in this, you know, completely white suburban area where I'm the only person of color. And there is John with his 10 gallon hat, and he's wearing that members only white satin jacket with a KKK member on, a, on his horse saying, and it's in bold letters, the Grand Wizard of the KKK something, something, something chapter that was emblazoned on the back of his jacket. And then there I am sitting across from him at the table with my microphone. You know, people must be wondering, what is wrong with this picture? But I got some great stories from him. And one day he paid me a compliment. And he says, you know, Tracy, I really like you for a gook. And I thought, well, John, I... I don't know what to say, but thank you. Because that was the highest compliment that he could pay me, 
then he got to the point where he would always call me about all these stories. And I wanted to tell him, I don't mind doing these stories, but do you understand that when you tell me these things, this does not look favorably upon you? And he says, no, 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 we, you know, we're really proud of it. I said, I just want you to know that when I do these stories, I'm not giving you publicity in a good way. Mm-hmm. I am telling people, this is what's going on. You know, maybe people need to be aware. He says, oh, I don't care. I don't care what people think of us. We know what we're doing. So it was this very <laughs> honest and open, you know, sort of source relationship that I never forgot that I was accepted <laughs> into the KKK. I mean, you know, you see what I look like. You think, and I didn't think about myself as being Asian. I just thought of myself as being Tracy, mm-hmm. you know, until they made me realize, oh, yeah, you are not one of us. Well, you know, what would you say to budding journalists out there, to your listeners, you know, who, who think, okay, you know, I come from a small island, and how can I make my mark out there in the world? I mean, you've been able to, you know, to travel and do all these fascinating stories across, you know, the globe. So, I don't know. What, what would you, what advice would you give an up-and-comer? I always say, just be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Put yourself, do not think of yourself as, as anything other than there to do the job. Try to get inside a person's head. Search for that key way to see life from that person's point of view. And let your listener experience that. You know? And that's what I keep telling the students that I work with with NextGen. I guess one of the things I keep telling them, and my daughter is always groaning, is defining moments. And I always talk about this defining moment. And I said, you know, when a defining moment comes along, you may not even know it's a defining moment. But when that moment comes along, you either define that moment or the moment defines you. And in that moment, are you going to stick with it? Are you going to give it one more try? Are you going to walk away? Because these are teachable moments. And I always say to them, reach out out of your skin. Yes, it's sometimes scary, and it is sometimes painful, but you are there for a higher cause. And your cause is to get into their head and try to convey their story. That's what I did with the, the KKK. That's what I did with Jane Rowe, the real Jane Rowe in Roe versus, versus Wade. Wade. I mm. know her very, very well. I knew her. And I was there when she converted to be a born-again Christian. I was there. She had called me. I, I did this article on it about, you know, I knew the, the real Jane Rowe. And these are uncomfortable moments. And these are moments when you think, God, you know, what the heck am I doing here sitting in the car for five hours waiting? Is this worth it? Yeah, it is. It is because you are there. You've got the front seat to something happening in history. All of these moments are defining moments. And if I walked away, that moment would have defined me as not the journalist that I wanted to be. But these are the moments that I grab and say, okay, I'm going to define this moment and say, this is what I want to do. And I did this and I got these great stories. I went to countries, you know, for the world that were horrible. Sierra Leone, Nairobi, part of Vietnam, you know, the Philippines. I went to areas that were not safe for me and were scary at times. But I have to, you know, have my wits about me and say, okay, yeah, I have to take care of myself and protect myself. But I'm here to get the story. That's the higher cause. A higher cause. Good advice from Hawaii-born journalist Tracy Tong. She was part of the early HPR days when the station was on the University of Hawaii campus at the Quarry. She currently works as an editor on the Next Gen Radio program. She's to receive the Leo C. Lee Award at the Public Media Journalism Association Conference in Texas later this month. Mm-hmm. 
Maui native R. Kikuo Johnson made history recently as the first graphic novelist to win the prestigious Whiting Award honoring emerging talent. You may recognize him for his work that appears regularly in The New Yorker. We first met Johnson in 2021 when his third novella, No One Else, was released. That was the same year his illustration titled Delayed, featuring an anxious mother and daughter standing on a subway platform, was used as cover art by The New Yorker. Senator Maisie Hirono tweeted about it in the midst of rising incidents of Asian-American Pacific Islander hate. The conversation Lillian Song caught up with Johnson this past April following his historic win. The Whiting Award is not an award that anyone applies for. They try to make it really feel like just a gift. And to be honest, I had never heard of it. You know, no cartoonist has ever won that award before. And so I didn't know what it was. And at the time, I was actually living in Providence where I was teaching. I actually had COVID and I was trying to teach my classes and I was exhausted. And I kept getting these missed calls. And when the call finally came through, I picked up and the woman on the other line said to me, we are the Whiting Foundation. We are a literary foundation and we offer a grant and you have won this grant and there is money attached and it was a complete shock and I just maybe I was just underslept and feeling weak but I just I sobbed just sobbing for like 20 minutes she was very kind she was like I'll talk for a while you don't have to say anything and I I couldn't compose myself it was such a shock well that is in that moment you're processing the news this is big news no one else came out in 2021 I saw you had also been picking up some other awards for no one else, like the L.A. The L.A. Times Book Award. So would this have been around that time? Yeah. So no one else came out in November of 2021. And uh, some some like lukewarm reviews started coming in. And then I, I got news that it won an L.A. Times Book Prize, which was really, really cool. I flew out to L.A. and and, and then I thought it was all over and I I kind of stopped promoting the book and I put my head down and got back to work. And then suddenly, January of this year, the Whiting Foundation called and put me back in a space where I could think more creatively and think about maybe what the next project might be. And you're making history because you're the first cartoonist, first graphic novelist to be recognized by the Whiting Award, which has been around since 1985. So very established, very well-known for people in the literary circles. What happens after you get the news, you're still recovering from COVID, you're in Providence? Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is I was so blindsided by winning the award. And, you know, you do, or I made this book because it's a passion project. It was the book that I wanted to read that I didn't feel like people were making. And, And so I made it just knowing, you know, this wasn't going to sell much. And it was something that I really did for myself. And then to get this call and have it be recognized in a way that I just totally didn't expect. I, you know, I'm, I'm crying. And my partner, Yulia, happened to be staying with me in Providence at the time. And I opened the door after getting this phone call. She's, you know, working from home. And I just knock on the door and she's like, what's wrong? What happened to you? And I'm, I'm like still trying to wipe my tears away. And I was like, I just won a bunch of money. And I was just like totally shocked and feeling partially like an imposter, uh, partially feeling like I had this new expectation on my back. And it was a strange combination of feelings. But over time, after living with the news for a while, it just feels like such a gift. And I just, just mostly just filled with gratitude. So the Whiting Award, when you heard about it in January, we didn't really hear about it until like a few weeks ago. So you were sitting on the news all this time? Yeah, they make it really top secret. The whole award is designed to try to help emerging writers just develop a career and, and just really have the space to to work more. Like a lot of the other winners are poets and maybe artists who don't have the most lucrative pursuits. And so it's really this gift that they try to design to help us in our careers and they try to keep it all under wraps. They don't tell anybody. They tell us to keep it a secret so that they can have a big news blast and let the news all out at once to get the attention of the rest of the industry and hopefully, by extension, help our careers and help us promote the next projects. The list of winners for this year are made up of seven women, three men from California, Washington, D.C., New York, Jamaica. And it's like, it's so great to see Hawaii in that list. 
And then to see your name come up, Archiquo Johnson, and for us on The Conversation, we've aired your interview, and we've actually hanahoed it. You're able to really bring your background, bring who you are into that story. How does it feel to know that your Hawaii is out there resonating in the literary world? Oh, it feels amazing. It just feels great to have written something that it seems like people are connecting with. Some of my favorite books that I, I grew up reading are from worlds that, are, that I don't know anything about. One of my favorite cartoonists is Jaime Hernandez, who wrote a lot of comic books about like a punk rock scene in Chicano, L.A., and I don't know anything about that world. I've never been there, but just by telling that story directly, and he put me there, and I could learn about that space. And because it was so specific, it actually felt more real. And it seems like I use that partially as my model, and, and it seems like that's working. It seems like people are connecting with a space and maybe seeing a part of Hawaii that they wouldn't otherwise get to see. Did you ever train as a writer? So I went to art school. And the focus was, of course, studios. At art school, we had five-hour painting studios and drawing. But comics were always a passion of mine. And so I did take a lot of uh, writing classes. I went to the Rhode Island School of Design. And Rhode Island School of Design actually also is kind of a sister school of Brown University. So I was able to take a few writing courses through the college and also one through Brown. But I definitely... (laughs) feel like I have a long way to grow in that department. I definitely think of myself as a drawer before I think of myself as a writer. But to quote the great cartoonist Art Spiegelman, comics is a great opportunity to bounce your two weaknesses off of each other. You know, you can, instead of uh, being bad at both, you can kind of put them together and, and make something work. Good advice to keep in mind as you're writing and drawing. The Whiting Award will give you more financial freedom and enable you more time to focus on your creative passions. That's the hope. That's the dream. When I was working on no one else, you know, making comics is such a time-consuming process. It's not uncommon to just sit behind the desk and draw for 12 to 16 hours a day. Uh, Luckily, it's something I love to do, but it it is very time-consuming. And during that period, I was turning down a lot of work just to focus on that passion project. And I had the luxury to do so at that at that moment. It was during the pandemic. And so I wasn't going out a whole lot, as none of mm-hmm. us were. And then once the book was over, it was a, I put pressure on myself to bear down and take on a lot of commercial projects, did some book covers and some commercial work for different brands, Coca-Cola and things like that. And then getting this award, it was just, it was a real relief and a moment right now, finally, having a minute to breathe and and sit down and giving some deep thought to really what would I actually like to draw and what do I really want to do next? It's just such a gift to have that breathing space. Well, I read that The Shark King already had a third printing. That was your early kicky book. Would you be doing like a volume two or what inspires you now? Uh, You know, there's nothing for me as satisfying as making books. Something about the just the quality of ink on paper and turning those pages and the excitement of actually flipping a physical page to see what's printed on the other side and that reveal, I'm constantly drawn back to that. So I have a few book projects that I'm, I'm kind of in the sketching stages of. I've drawn many drawings for new projects, but nothing quite ready to to show anyone yet but hopefully hopefully i can get those things to work and it's just a joy to spend time doing that Mm, well you know you've got so much ahead to to continue to explore create and we definitely will be keeping our eyes on you in closing what would you like to say before we say aloha oh i was not prepared for in 2021 when i was came home to Hawaii to promote no one else in my last book. I was not prepared for the warmth of the reception. I think shortly after we did our first interview, I did a store appearance at Boss Books in Honolulu. And I get, I'm getting, I just <laughs> I get emotional thinking about it. Like people brought me lays and were so kind and just so genuinely happy to see me and, and people, I, strangers I didn't know, but felt like, Maybe I was somehow, someone told me, it's like, you know, when you succeed, we all succeed. And I thought that was a really nice thing to say, 
but it wasn't until I went to Maui later and I was talking to another friend of mine who's an artist who's doing a really amazing project. I can't reveal it here, but he's doing a really amazing project on a national scale, a Maui artist. And I deeply felt that feeling. I've seen him succeed. I thought, oh my God, like you are doing something so cool. And I feel like we're all succeeding because of you. And, and that was just the warmth of coming home and feeling that was just overwhelming. So thank you. What I want to say is thank you so much. That was HPR's Lillian Song talking with Maui-born illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson. Johnson was one of 10 writers who received the 2023 Whiting Award. The award honors work in poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and drama. Well, that does it for today's special showcase of people who became the first from Hawaii to receive recognition in their field. We'd like to hear from you. You can call our talkback line and leave your comments. Here's that number, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you missed any of this show or want to listen to a past one, find them on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also subscribe to the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Sabiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The background quiz theme written for us by John DeMello, and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tune in Monday through Friday to join the conversation. <music>